Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good evening, and uh, I want to invite you to take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of Mark, the 8th chapter. Mark chapter 8, and we're going to cover a uh, significant portion of Scripture this evening, verse 1 through verse 26, which really all of the uh, episodes that we're going to investigate this evening indicate that sometimes uh, when it comes to life and in particular spiritual issues, uh, we just don't get it. And we're going to see this both in the life of the disciples and also tragically in the life of the Pharisees as well. So Mark chapter 8, and because it's good to read the Word of God, I'll read for us tonight from verse 1 through verse 26. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves that, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them, and they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Uh, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now, they, that is the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he calls to them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Have eyes, uh, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the uh, and, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked and uh, he said, looking up, he said, I, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. 
And he sent him home to, or sent him to his village, saying, do not even enter the village. Repetition is a wonderful and effective teacher because many of us, including this person speaking tonight, are very slow learners. Sometimes it's not the first time, but the second and sometimes the third and sometimes even the fourth attempt before the instruction uh, begins to sink in and we begin to understand. And other times we are so slow to perceive the the truth that is being set before us. It may be the tenth, uh, the eleventh, the twelfth, or further uh, before it again sinks in and we learn the valuable lesson. Certainly many of us who are parents can uh, can understand that when it comes to our our children. And sometimes we can get discouraged. We, we get frustrated. Why do some people pick up things so fast? And why is it that I seem to be in the class for slow learners? Well, uh, I've got good news for you. Uh, if you're in that class, you're in the same class as the apostles. Uh, the 12 that the Lord called unto himself, the ones that he would use to lay the foundation for the church, the ones who the Bible says uh, would turn the world upside down, were very, very, very slow learners. We're in good company if we happen to be in that particular class. And one of the ways we see this tonight, and many people will miss this, and I had it brought out to me in my study. One of the ways we see this is we have basically a reoccurring cycle in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 30, that parallel verbatim in terms of of sequence, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 30, uh, through chapter 7, verse 37. You've got similar events, that are recorded in basically the very same order and arrangement. You see it there in your notes. There was the feeding of a great multitude in chapter 6, verse 30 through 44, and again in chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. There's a boat trip back in chapter 6, verse 45 through 56, and a very abbreviated account of one in chapter 8, verse 10. There was a confrontation with the Pharisees back in chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, and another abbreviated count of a confrontation in chapter 8, 11 through 13. There was a conversation about bread back in chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. There was a miraculous healing in chapter 7, verses 31 through 36, and also in chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. And as we will see uh, next week, there was a confession back Back in chapter 7, verse 37, that is paralleled in chapter 8, verse 27. Now, I believe these events happen sequentially uh, in terms of their history. I think they actually did occur one after the other in chapter 6, going through uh, the, the end of chapter 7, and also in the entirety of what we see here in chapter 8. But I also believe that they are recorded in the way that they are for the purpose of theology, and in particular, to teach you and me a very valuable lesson about discipleship, about how important it is for us to remember what the Lord has done, to recall what the Lord has done. And in essence, having seen his great works in the past, that should inspire and encourage me and you to trust him in what he is doing now in the present. In other words, if he was sufficient for our needs in the past, why would we question that he is also sufficient for our needs today? And so sometimes we fail to take it to heart this lesson, and unfortunately, Sometimes we're forgetful. And as a result of that, as chapter 8, verse 17 says, we run the risk of developing a hard heart, a callous heart, where we don't see the Lord working even in the midst of our trials 
uh, and our difficulties and our moments of heartache and sorrows. In fact, the fact that what it comes down to is this, though we could see him very faithful in the past, we're not sure he's faithful in the present. And again, to come back to our theme this evening, sometimes we just don't get it. And so what are we going to see tonight in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 26? Four uh, different events that prepare us for the climactic confession in Mark's gospel in chapter 8 and verse 29, when Peter finally says, under the inspiration of God himself, you are the Christ. And so in this first of the, in this, in this, the shortest gospel, basically we're coming to almost a midpoint, really after chapter eight, verse 29, we really move into the second part of this gospel and there'll be much more emphasis upon his, uh, being the Christ. There'll be much more emphasis upon his, uh, approaching death. There'll be much more, uh, emphasis upon his predicting his death and he'll spend more intimate time with the disciples until we get to the passion narrative itself, which begins very clearly in chapter 11. Verse 1. So, four major events, four major ideas for our consideration this evening. Number one, Jesus always has a plan, but sometimes we only see a problem. It begins there in verse 1. In those days, which is an indefinite time mark, it doesn't give us a precise time, just in those days. But I think it informs us that the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 probably took place first in the region of the Decapolis, where we saw Jesus back in chapter 7, verse 31. And therefore, it is an extension of his mission to the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus fed the 5,000 men. It was almost exclusively a Jewish audience. Now he's going to feed the 4,000 people, and it is almost exclusively or at least primarily a Gentile audience. In other words, does he care equally for Jew and Gentile? He most certainly does. Does he have a mission to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles? He most certainly does. And as we sometimes see the symbolism here, this great feast that the Jews enjoyed in chapter 6, now the Gentiles enjoy in chapter 8, and that anticipates the great feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when both Jew and Gentile will come together around the throne and in company with the Lamb. And so Jews may have been present, but for the most part, for these three days, it has been Gentiles that have been following and listening to the teaching of Jesus. Now, this would not surprise you. Some skeptics have said, well, you know, there really wasn't two feedings. Uh, that, that just doesn't make sense. And so what happened was uh, somehow the tradition got confused. And somehow the early church got confused and, and came up with two different feedings when actually there was only one feeding. And by the way, many of those skeptics would even argue there were no feedings at all. They would just simply say, well, this was a mythical story that was created by the early church. And somehow their mythical story got turned into two myths. That's what they will say. However, if you look at the text very carefully, I think you can see quite clearly, one, uh, there is no confusion. And secondly, there is enough difference between the two accounts to make it clear that there was not one feeding, but two feedings, and that indeed, this is exactly what Jesus himself will affirm down in chapter 8, verse 19 and verse 20. But look at what you see here. Feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men plus additional people, probably more like a feeding of 20,000. But here we see 4,000 people approximately total. When he fed the 5,000, five loaves and two fish. When he feeds the 4,000, seven loaves and an indefinite number, a few small fish. Uh, When he fed the 5,000, they were one day in the wilderness. Now, 
feeding of the 4,000, three days in the wilderness. When he fed the 5,000, it was clearly springtime, green grass everywhere, most likely taking place uh, north of Galilee. When he feeds the 4,000, there's no mention of time. In fact, the fact that it refers to as a desolate place without any mention of grass has caused some to think that this took place perhaps in the fall when the grass was fading. And furthermore, if it was in the region of the Decapolis, it would have been southeast of the Sea of Galilee. He fed the 5,000, and there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. When he fed the 4,000, there were seven baskets full of leftovers. Now, I'll point out in a moment for you that when he fed the 5,000, the 12 baskets were small baskets. When he fed the 4,000, the Greek word is used for a much larger basket, almost like a, uh, a clothes hamper something that large. And so there's two different words used in the Greek text for the type of basket that was filled. So smaller baskets when he fed the 5,000, very large baskets when he fed the 4,000. When he fed the 5,000, he prayed one time. But when he fed the 4,000, he prayed two times. And as I mentioned earlier, when he fed the 5,000, mostly if not exclusively Jews, when he fed the 4,000, mostly if not exclusively Gentiles. And so I would grant Sure, there are some similarities, but there are also significant differences. And furthermore, Jesus himself seals the deal in chapter 8, verse 19 and verse 20, when he tells us there were, and when he refers to clearly two distinct separate feedings. So I think Jesus has a plan. I think his plan is he wants us to see his love and his concern for Gentiles, just as he has love and concern for the Jews. Yes, he is the long-awaited and expected Jewish Messiah, but as John 3:16 reminds us, he is also the savior of the world. And so he does have compassion for these lost pagan Gentiles, and just as he cared for the 5,000 men plus when he fed them, he now cares for these 4,000 Gentiles as well. In fact, note three movements to verses 1 through 10. First of all, Jesus does care. It says there in verse 1 that in those days when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. Uh, He then goes to the disciples and he says to them, he calls them to himself and says in verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they have now been with me three days and there's the repetition of the phrase, they have nothing to eat. It's interesting to note that back in chapter 6 and verse 35 when he fed the 5,000 men, uh, Mark has an editorial comment and he says he had compassion uh, on the people. But now the text itself has Jesus saying, I have compassion on the people. In other words, Mark could say he was compassionate because he acted compassionately in feeding the 5,000. But now Jesus himself says, I have compassion for this group of people, Gentiles, Just like I had compassion for that group, Jews. He also notes that they've been there with him three days. And evidently they've been on something of a uh, unintended fast because he says they have nothing to eat. Whether it is they had nothing to begin with or now they have nothing because they've run out, we don't know. But we do understand that at this point in time, they have been with him for three days. Minimally, they have run out of food and and there's a crisis brewing here. In fact, he says there in verse 3, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint. Uh, they, they, They will not make it. And some of them have come from a very long way. In fact, the NIV says not only will they faint, it uses the phrase, they will collapse. And so Jesus is very compassionate. 
Uh, he's very tender. Uh, he is paying very careful attention to each specific individual. He saw everyone in their need, just like he sees you and me in our need. And we understand in verses one through and three, one, two, and three, he, he does care. Secondly, he provides. Once again, he is going to involve the disciples in the feeding of this large crowd. It's another, if you like, teachable moment where he can again instruct the disciples concerning who he is and what he is capable of doing. So the text just kind of moves forward in a very logical way. He calls the disciples to himself in verse 1. He shares his heart that he has compassion, verse 2. He explains the situation to them in verse 2 and in verse 3. And finally, the disciples then respond with a question. And it's not a question of unbelief like it was when he fed the 5,000. It's actually more of a question of, we've got a pretty bad location here, uh, uh, Lord, and and there's just not sufficient resources among the people. They say in verse 4, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place. And so they raise a question, not saying it could not happen, but they are at least saying, given the circumstance and given the location, it seems rather unlikely. But again, Jesus responds quickly to their question. First, he says there in verse five, how many loaves do you have? And they responded seven. So there's seven small loaves of bread available. We will later learn uh, from verse seven that there are also a few small fish. So seven loaves of bread, a few small fish. That's all that there is. Then in verse 6, he begins to move into action. He, he directs the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. Then in verse 7, he takes the few small fish, probably the size of a modern sardine. Uh, He blesses these, so he blesses the bread. Then he blesses the fish. And as John MacArthur said, these newly created dead fish are perfectly edible. Think about that. He made, it's the only time in the history of the world that brand new fresh fish were created dead. Dead. But they're fresh. They're edible. In fact, they may be the best fish these people have ever eaten in their entire lives. And so they take that fish, they pass them out. And again, as was the case with the previous uh, account of his feeding the 5,000, it says in verse 8, and they ate and they were satisfied. Which leads us then to our third observation that Jesus satisfied. Sinclair Ferguson in his book on Mark says this about the feeding. It foreshadows the gathering together of those from every nation under heaven to the heavenly feeding of God's people. And because God's people have been fed by God's Messiah, they indeed are satisfied, as is Mark's pattern. He gives a very simple and succinct summary there in verse 8. They ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And yes, there were about 4,000 people and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. In other words, Jesus has again performed a miracle that only the Messiah could perform. They've gathered the leftovers and filled seven, as I mentioned earlier, large baskets. Again, the Greek text uses a different word for baskets here in chapter 8 than it did back in chapter 6. It means very large baskets. It also tells us very clearly that the number fed was different, 4,000. And now that they are fed and now that they are satisfied and now that they will be okay, he sends them on their way and immediately 
Galilee. He boards a boat with his disciples and they move to Dalmanutha. Matthew, by the way, if you're cross-referencing in chapter 15, verse 39 says they went to Magadan, which is near Tiberias on the north uh, west shore of the Sea of Galilee. So it's a little bit more specific. Here it says they go to the district of Dalmanutha. And there it simply says more precisely, they went to Magadan. And so again, it's just another normal day in the life of Messiah Jesus who satisfies everyone who comes to him. Again, we see that a little can become a lot in the hands of our creator God. And again, we see something of the inbreaking of God's kingdom as he satisfies the people and brings them to a great messianic banquet that anticipates the messianic banquet that will be enjoyed uh, in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. I mean, this is a grand day, a glorious day, a wonderful day. You'd think everybody be celebrating, but unfortunately, the religious Gestapo are just around the corner So we move to our second major movement in this text. Unbelievers will demand a sign, sign, but reject one when they see it. Uh, Verse 11 is rather abrupt. The uh, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Uh, We've been here before, haven't we? In your notes, I've noted chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, verse 16, verse 18, verse 24, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, verse 22, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Again and again and again and again, the religious Gestapo, known as the Pharisees, shows up not celebrating the mighty works done by God through Jesus, but again questioning him and trying to bring him down. He's fed 5,000. He's fed 4,000. He's performed numerous miracles, all of which give evidence that he is the Christ, but they refuse what they see. They refuse what they hear. And now they raise the stakes in their confrontation with Jesus. And basically what we're going to see in these verses is like many people, when it comes to being confronted with Christ, look, uh, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. It doesn't matter how much evidence you mount I'm not going to see that he is indeed the Christ, the son of the living God. So we see three movements to this particular episode. First, they test the Lord. The Bible says they came and began to argue with him. The word means to dispute. Uh, It even has the idea of debate. So they want to enter into a, a theological argument, a theological dispute, a theological debate. Secondly, they ask for, and note their language very precisely, they ask for a sign from heaven. In other words, they're demanding that he provide something that would demonstrate that what he is doing, and, and don't miss this, they don't deny what he's done. They don't deny he healed a leper. They don't deny that he fed the 5,000. They don't deny that he gave hearing to the deaf man back in chapter 7 and opened up his mouth so that he could speak clearly. They never deny the miracles. They never do. But what they're arguing is, what is your source? If you remember back in chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, they said, oh, we know by what source you do this. You do these things by the power of Beelzebub. You do these things by the power of Satan. So amazingly, they never deny the miracles. But they question the source. And so they demand, we want a sign that would prove that truly these things are from God. But then Mark adds a insight for us, does he not? 
uh, they were seeking a sign from him to test him. And in this context, the idea of testing means to discredit him. Uh, they wanted to prove that he was a fraud before the people who were following him. They, they really weren't testing him as much as they were trying to trap him. And with the view of uh, basically demonstrating that his ministry was not authentic. There's a good practical application here, by the way. It's one thing to put the Lord to a test in faith. But it's another thing to put him to the test in unbelief. And they fall into the latter category, not the former. So they test the Lord. Secondly, they grieve the Lord. For the second time in two chapters, our Lord sighs. Back in chapter 7, he sighed over the situation of the man who was deaf and could not speak. He, he was grieved over the fall, and he was grieved over what sin has done to those made in God's image. But here he's not sighing over that, but rather he sighs over their unbelief. It calls us to well within him deep, deep emotion. I mean, think about it. The Pharisees were the teachers of the law. The Pharisees were the guardians of theological orthodoxy. If anyone should have recognized that he was the Messiah, it should have been them. And yet they reject him. And as we know, they're moving now to foster an agenda that will result ultimately in his crucifixion. And so he sighs. Uh, he's grieved. He, he has anguish and sorrow of soul because they have minds that refuse the evidence. They have hearts that remain hard. They have eyes that won't see. They have ears that won't hear. They want a sign. He would say to them, then read the scriptures. Very interesting that in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 16, it does add, he said, I'll give you this sign, Jonah, the sign of Jonah. And then he, he's gone. Mark simply summarizes it more concise and says, bottom line, he gave them not what they wanted. I, I won't give you a sign. Read the scriptures. Listen to my words. See what I do. Beyond that, there will be no sign given to this generation. And, you know, as you think about it, I, I wonder what sign could he have given them that would have uh, caused them to reverse their judgment. I, I can't think of anything. Again, I had a friend that uh, is an agnostic that uh, we were talking one time about the, the resurrection. And he said, you know, I, I admit the evidence is pretty overwhelming that the tomb was empty. But I'm an agnostic. I don't even believe God exists, so I could hardly believe that a dead man could come back to life. In other words, he's basically saying, I don't care what evidence you would present. Any explanation, as David Hume, the skeptic, said, any explanation of an event is better than a supernatural one. So it doesn't matter that the evidence overwhelmingly points in that direction. We're simply not going to go down that road. And so Jesus, in essence, says, if you can't see God at work in me, then no amount of evidence is going to convert you or convince you to think in any other way. Bottom line, your demand for something more is nothing less than expression of your radical, fixed, hard-hearted unbelief. And I'm not going to play games with those who are starting and, and choosing to stay in the realm and the world of unbelief. Jesus would say later, or in another context, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, don't cast your pearls before swine. And at this point, he's saying, I've done all I can do with you. And he basically walks away. And that leads us to our third observation in verse 13. They lose the Lord. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Mark gets right to the point, doesn't he? Nothing more can be said. Nothing more can be done. 
Abruptly almost as a sign of righteous indignation and divine judgment, Jesus leaves them. He gets in the boat, they go away, and they are gone. Think about it. These religious zealots, and, and they were zealous. They absolutely were zealous. Go read what Paul says about the Jews in Romans chapter 10. He says they have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. In other words, you can be zealous for God and miss God. And they were zealous. But there he is right in their midst. There he is performing these miracles. There he is saying the things that he says, and they miss him. In other words, though they were so near... In a paradoxical kind of a way, they were really so very far away. And so they test him. They grieve him and they lose him. Third movement of our section this evening. In chapter 8, verses 14 through 21, disciples will see great works but fail to fully understand. Look at what happens there in verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, there's so much comedy right there. I, I could spend the whole night making jokes. These, these morons, or I shouldn't say that, these, these, these unwitting disciples had just filled up seven monster baskets, seven clothes hampers full of bread. And for some reason, when they make their getaway, they bring one. One. And so here they are in the boat, and they have forgotten to bring bread. At least one of the 12 had enough sense, probably Judas, and they have one loaf with them in the boat. And so the Pharisees are not the only ones in this text, as we're about to see, who did not understand, who had hardened hearts, who did not spiritually see or hear. The difference is the the disciples, though they're moving very, very, very slowly, at least they're progressing and moving in the right direction, though you would not recognize it in this initial part of this particular story. Note with me, first of all, that we still sometimes misunderstand our Lord's words there in verses 14 through 16. Quick departure, only one loaf of bread with them. The seven large baskets full, this is all they snagged. So apparently, they begin to have a discussion about this among themselves. Uh, I'm implying that, but it sure seems to me like they begin to recognize they've got a predicament. Knowing the 12 as we do by now, I imagine that they are blaming uh, each other for this. And evidently, they can't see the irony of it. Uh, They can't see the humor of the situation. And furthermore, this is what's so big to me. Who's in the boat with them? Who's in the boat? Jesus is. Well, if he just fed 4,000 with, with seven loaves, I bet he can find a way to take care of 12 with one. But no, 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 they don't get it. And so they are, you know, they've forgotten and, and they're dialoguing about it and everything. And so Jesus steps in because it's another teachable moment. And it comes out of left. I mean, I need to be fair to them. This comes out of nowhere. I mean, they're like, huh? What did he say? Because what does he say? Verse 15, he cautioned them saying in two imperatives in rapid fire succession, watch out, a a present imperative, beware, another present imperative. You say, what does that mean? Present tense, continuous action, imperative, word of command. In other words, he is saying to them, you continually uh, be watching out and you continually beware of what? The leaven of the Pharisees, and where does this come from? The leaven of Herod. Now, I'll give you the point that Jesus is making, and then we'll see how the disciples, again, bless their heart, they just 
don't get it. In the Bible, not every time, but most of the time, leaven is a sign of evil. Uh, Many times it's a sign of sin. So he is telling them, watch out, beware uh, of the evil or, or the sinfulness of the Pharisees and the evil and the sinfulness of Herod. Furthermore, as you know, leaven is a very small thing, but when you mix it in uh, and you cook the bread, it expands. It, it permeates and affects the whole lump when mixed. And I think primarily here he has in mind, because of what we are going to see in the following verses, I think he is speaking of the leaven of unbelief that characterizes the Pharisees and the leaven of unbelief that also has gripped the heart of Herod as well. And therefore, a little bit has now taken over their whole lives. In other words, if you remember, Herod initially found the ministry of John the Baptist intriguing. But eventually, as a pragmatist and having made a stupid promise to his uh, stepdaughter, he has John the Baptist beheaded and his heart becomes harder and more cruel and he goes down a path of absolute destruction. I think the Pharisees, at least initially, were open to what this Galilean prophet was saying, but now they had persisted in unbelief, persisted in unbelief, persisted in unbelief. In other words, they came to a fork in the road. Instead of going the way of belief and ending up over here, They went the way of unbelief, and they're way, way, way over here. So Jesus wants to warn his disciples, look, you're you're just as susceptible. Even though you've been with me, even though you've seen what I've done, heard what I've said, you make the wrong decision, you choose the wrong course, you may wind up over there, cross country, where they are. I've seen it a thousand times. Speaking hyperbolically, I've seen it dozens of times of men and women who walked with God, who gave evidence of great faith and great trust. Something happened in their lives and they now have come to a fork in the road and they can choose the way of God and the way of faith or they can choose the way that's contrary to God's will and the way of unbelief and they start down that road and I meet them a year later, two years later, five years later and you know what, I don't recognize them. I can remember talking to a couple. I, I, I don't do a lot of weddings anymore because uh, what I do, I, I just don't have the relationship that uh, uh, I would as a pastor. But I remember marrying a couple, uh, the only couple I know that I've ever married that got a divorce. And I told them that if I ever heard that they were moving in that direction, I'd track them down, and I did. And I talked to uh, one on the phone for about 30 minutes, the, the, the wife, and then I tracked down the husband, talked to him on the phone for about 30 minutes. And I told both of them at the end of the conversation, I don't even know who you are anymore. I said, you're not the couple I married. There's a bitterness that I didn't know that did not exist back then. There's a harshness that wasn't there back then. Uh, You have absolutely bought into the blame game. Nothing's your fault. Everything's his fault. Nothing's your fault. Everything's her fault. And I just, I don't even know who you are. Just, Just the tone of your voice on the phone is foreign to what I knew five or six, seven or eight years ago. And so Jesus is concerned that that little unbelief can slip into their lives and lead them down the road of destruction just like the Pharisees. Watch out. Beware, don't let unbelief take you down and away from the divine truth you see and hear in me. Verse 16 tragically points out that they don't get it, so they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Good night. He is not talking about bread. 
He is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And you just aren't listening very well, are you? Jesus is speaking of spiritual matters. But they are still stuck on the earthly and the mundane. They just don't get it. So they misunderstand our Lord's words. But also, they may misunderstand our Lord's work. Verse 17, he's aware of what's going on. And so he said to them, and what you find in your notes are incorrect. I went back this afternoon and walked through the text again. And there are not eight questions here. There are nine. And so I, I, my notes are incorrect, and you need to fix that. There's a series of nine rhetorical questions that he fires at them in rapid-fire succession. The first one is actually this. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? The implied answer is because we aren't paying much attention, are we? No, you're not. Question number two. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Sadly, no, we don't. Question number three. Are your hearts hardened? Sadly, yes. Question number four, having eyes, do you not see? Sadly, no, we don't. Question number five, having ears, do you not hear? Sadly, no, we don't. Question number six, do you not yet remember? Apparently not. Verse 18. Question number seven, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets full did you collect? Uh, 12. Question number eight, when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets full did you collect? Uh, seven. Question number nine. Do you not yet understand? Again, apparently, no, we don't. Now, I don't think these questions are intended so much to shame them as it is to instruct them. Yeah, sometimes discipleship is tough. Sometimes in discipleship, you have to get up close and personal and get in somebody's face and really read them the spiritual right act. So in rapid-fire succession, he just hammers them with question after question after question after question that reveals that unfortunately, in light of all that you've seen, you are very close to being infected by the leaven of unbelief. I guess they had never heard Luke one thirty-seven. for nothing will be impossible with God. I guess they never paid attention to what Paul would say later in Philippians 4, 12 through 13. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. All that they've seen and heard, and yet they're having a debate about we only got one loaf of bread. My soul, how are we going to make it through the day? Which leads us then to our fourth and final act this evening. The blind may see, but it may come gradually. Now, don't miss what this is. You see in the notes, these verses constitute a visual parable. A visual parable that though historically true, pictures the spiritual pilgrimage and progress of the disciples. And, brothers and sisters, it is not by accident that it is sandwiched between verses 14 through 21, where they are in this debate about not having enough bread, and chapter 8, verse 27 and following, where Peter finally gets it, at least on that occasion, and says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. And so that, by the way, is going to explain one of the weirdest miracles in the Bible. Why did Jesus heal him in a two-step kind of a way? I mean... Isn't he capable of just like doing it? Yes. He didn't have to be there. He just says, go home. Uh, The demon's gone. 
Go home. Uh, your, your servant's well. So why is it that he does this in a two-step manner? Because it is a parable of the gradual sight that is coming on the disciples. A sight, by the way, that will not fully be clear until after the crucifixion, his burial, and the resurrection. Interestingly, this is another miracle that we find only in Mark's gospel. And as I said, the two-step stage of the two-stage healing is a picture of what's going on with the disciples. No one really questions that Jesus could have healed him instantaneously. It is unique that he doesn't. And I believe it's pedagogical that he does. So what do we see in this? Number one, we can bring the herding to Jesus. They arrive at Bethsaida on the northeast shore of Galilee. They've been there previously back in chapter six and verse 45. They are met immediately by a delegation who bring a blind man who they begged to touch him. By the way, look back and there's a misprint. I caught it this afternoon. Not 832, but 732 is where you see Jesus touching uh, the um, the man that was uh, deaf and could not speak well by spitting on his tongue and putting his fingers in his ears. So there's a parallel going on here. So they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought to him a blind man and they begged him that he would touch him. No doubt they've heard that this is a compassionate man. They've heard that this man is capable of doing the miraculous. They believe, as chapter 7, verse 37 says, he does all things well. And they're hopeful that he will do this for their friend. And brothers and sisters, the fact of the matter is we're never disappointed. We are never disappointed when we bring our friends to Jesus. And neither were they. That means we can not only bring the hurting to Jesus, we can trust the hurting with Jesus. Verse 23, again, starts a very simple, straightforward narrative of what happened. Jesus, again, tender in his treatment of the blind man as he had been tender in his treatment of the deaf man back in chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. The text tells us first, he took the blind man and note by the hand. Secondly, the text says he led him out of the village to an area of privacy. Again, perhaps like the man who could not hear and could not speak, this man had been the object of ridicule and scorn. No doubt some with their faulty theology had said, well, you're blind because of some sin that either you committed or your parents committed. And so Jesus is very gracious, very kind. He moves away from the crowd. Then he does something very unusual by spitting on his eyes and asking him, do you see anything? And he says in verse 24, he looked up and said, I see men but they look like trees that are walking. In other words, I see some, but I don't see all. And by the way, the text doesn't give any indication that Jesus was surprised by this. In fact, you almost sense he expected for him to have partial sight initially. And therefore, he then in verse 25, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. In other words, just as disciples will eventually see everything clearly, though gradually, he eventually saw everything clearly and though gradually. Again, Sinclair Ferguson, the wonderful Presbyterian pastor in Columbia, South Carolina, says it so well. What is the significance of this? Was it that this man was a particularly difficult case for Jesus? Hardly. Was the miracle then, like others, a sign? Yes. But to whom? To the man? No. To the disciples. And this is confirmed by the fact that Jesus had already asked them about their vision of him, verse 18. 
He was now leading them by the hand to the point at which their sight would become much clearer. And Peter would confess, you are the Christ, verse 29. Their spiritual understanding did not come instantaneously, but gradually. They too, like this blind man, needed the second touch from the hands of their master. Verse 26 is one we've also seen before. Jesus sends the man home saying, do not even enter the village. There's no need for a show. There's no desire to make him a spectacle. Uh, This miracle of physical healing was for his eyes and for the disciples spiritualized. And that it accomplished those two things as far as the Lord was concerned was more than enough. I thought about the song again as I was working through this text, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, and now I see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this eighth chapter of Mark that leads us up to a climactic moment when Peter will confess that you are the Christ. It's been a long time coming because the disciples, a lot like us, uh, were kind of slow learners. But Lord, I thank you so much that as long as we are pursuing you, you receive us. As long as we are coming to you, you don't cast us away. In fact, uh, you actually expect that we will sometimes come three steps forward and then two steps back and then make progress and fall back. And yes, Lord, sometimes we, we forget. We don't remember or recall your great acts of faithfulness in our past. And Lord, it may be that tonight there's some here that could testify, oh, God did do something great in my life in the past, but today, and then they kind of go silent. Lord, might it be that you would show yourself again mighty and strong and able and sufficient, not only for what you've done for us in the past, but what you can do for us and will do for us today, and also what you will do for us tomorrow. You demonstrate in your word that you are faithful and trustworthy. May we believe and have ears that hear, eyes that see, all for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.